I was counting. I think I have done you and Tommy's show three times. And this is your first time doing my show. You did an iteration of something for me. Yes. But I'm very happy that we are kind of switching a bit and you are here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Well, thanks for doing me the favor. Um, but I was going to start somewhere totally different, but you're now telling me a story about Knox being a baller <laughs> and you potentially coaching. Please repeat that story for the audience. Yeah. So Knox, my oldest, did not care about basketball while I played. And then he got really obsessed over the last year. So he started uh, like doing once a week clinics in the spring, but then we signed him up for this rec league in September. The rec league... Not the best competition. So we found him another team to play simultaneously with. And uh, he's had a few games. And I went to the coach last week and I said, hey, do you mind if I help out when I'm here? Obviously, I'm doing games and stuff. But uh, when I'm here, I'll, I would love to help out. He's like, absolutely. So yesterday, I coached in my first game. And after the game, the coach called me and said, would you be the head coach? <laughs> so... So I guess, you know, I texted a bunch of my friends and I was like, I, I got my first head coaching offer yesterday yes. and I accepted. Uh, it's, a, it's an unpaid position. It's an unpaid position. But. So JJ, the head coach of what age group? They're eight. They are eight. <laughs> eight. Wow. Yeah. Real deal. Yes, yes. This is going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. Um, you know, I think teaching fundamentals is like really important, obviously, but I think the teaching the fundamentals of like what it means to be on a team at a young age, um, I don't think that gets stressed enough. And so that's something I'm going to focus on a little bit. Yeah. And know? well, this is also what this might be your first, you know, head coaching offer, but you very recently were asked about coaching somewhere else yes. in Boston. <laughs> yeah, I got randomly because, again, I'm not I don't have like a coaching agent, um, but I I. I got some unsolicited coaching offers over this uh, past off season. And the Boston thing just happened so quick. You know, yes. it was like a Thursday when the news broke. By Friday, I was talking to Brad. And by Sunday, I was playing golf with Joe. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, um, we got to <laughs> set the table here because I, I love this story. So what exactly did Brad say to you? And what exactly did Missoula say to you? Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get into the exact details, but look, I, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a situation where someone got suspended. Mm -hmm. I think it was five days before the start of training camp. So most coaches that are available, um, ha already have a job, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, or their head coach that's taking time off and, um, Joe so, sort of sliding into that interim position. Um, I think it was just like a unique thing. I was going up to Boston <laughs> to be clear. That was already planned. I was going up to Boston. Wink, I'm just kidding. To, no, my <laughs> my friend Ryan Hergerter, he throws this backyard party every year with a food truck and a band. And I'd never been. Our kids are the same age. So I was going up there anyways. And anytime I take a trip, I try to get a round of golf in. So Austin, Danny's son, and I were, were going to play on Sunday morning, as it was. And then it just so happened that Joe ended up being the fourth. Got it. Okay. If you don't, don't want to tell the exact details, that's yeah. fair. I can expect that. But why did you say no? Life is about timing. Um, yeah, I would love, I mean, I've talked briefly about this on my podcast, but I would love to coach at some point. Um, I don't feel like the timing is right right now. And speaking of timing, I'm, we're at the end of the round, we're having lunch. And I was like, Joe, by the way, when do I need to be in Boston? And for some reason, my brain hadn't quite grasped the fact that training camp was starting this week <laughs> that week and so he's like uh tuesday i need you there tuesday for the first practice and this was sunday afternoon and i'm like all right i don't know if i can swing this um yeah but to be clear i mean it seems like these were conversations about when i'd be there what it would look like there was this part of you that did want to potentially oh yeah yeah i this. wouldn't have again i told brad and joe this like i wasn't wasting anybody's time like it was something that i considered um, Chelsea had been out of town that whole week prior. So she got back and we had a long conversation Sunday night. Um, and I think our family, it's more about like my family and my kid's age and what they're getting into. And, um, you know, I mentioned to you, we're going through a renovation as well. I just signed contracts for the podcast and ESPN. And so there's just like the timings doesn't feel right. Uh, at this particular moment. Um, 
but hopefully in the near future, like that's hopefully something's going to happen. I would love to, to coach in the NBA. What do you think is the thing about JJ Redick that would make you a good coach? Um, I don't necessarily think it's one thing, mm-hmm. but I feel like I know the game pretty well. Yeah. I feel like because of some coaches I played for, really specifically Coach K, like he taught me about adaptability. And our game, the NBA, changes so fast year to year. You could be in an era and you think it's going to be a 10-year era and it could be a year or two. Mm-hmm. And so just having the mindset of my, the, the mindset of just being open to change, I think that's really good. Um, I think one of my greatest skills as a human being is my ability to communicate and communicate in an open and transparent way. And I did that as a teammate. And I think that's part of coaching is just not avoiding things and not avoiding confrontation. Locker rooms, team chemistry, it's a very fragile thing. We see it all the time in the NBA. And um, the other part of it is like, I look at coaching as, as a way to help. Yeah. And, you know, there's the competitive part of it for sure. That's a major driving force. Um, but it's like, I had so many people help me in my career and not just head coaches, but assistant coaches, player development people. Um, and they have such a valuable place in my, in my heart and in my life. And, I'd love to be one of those people someday. Yeah. I mean, because you said, and so much of being a coach, it isn't just about like this in-game stuff. It's not about adjustments. It's about being a manager of people. I think that's what really makes great coaches great, how they were able to figure out this mesh of people and make it work. So when you look at the coaches you've had, who's been not the best coach, but just the best manager of individuals? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think all my coaches did it well to a certain degree. They just did it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, Stan in particular was very direct with everyone. I mean, e- even early in my career, there was a little bit of this with me and him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and so I appreciate, I really appreciate that approach. Um, Doc was great about motivating people. Um, he's, he's great with words. He's a great communicator. Um, Brett had such a good soul and, a, and a, such a good heart. And so when he said something, you knew he meant it. Um, and I, those were the, I think, the coaches that I primarily spent the most time with as a player. And, and of course, coach. I mean, I, he's the only person I call coach, yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but of course, coach. I mean, he... he I feel like if I, you don't call him that, he yeah, like yeah, hears yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't <laughs> imagine calling him by his first name. That would... <laughs> That wouldn't go down yeah. well. <laughs> In your whole life, you've never called him by his first name. I never will. No. And I don't, man, I, I'll like occasionally say, thanks, coach, to someone else. But when I refer to people that are not in the room, it's like Brett and Doc and Stan. Yeah. And then it's coach. Yeah. I mean, I called my high school coach Billy. Like, that was his name, Billy. I called him Billy. You know, yeah. He's still Billy to me. Uh-huh. A coach is coach. How do you become that? Like, the coach why is he the one that you can't say his name it's (laughs) i just some of it is the level of respect because i grew up a duke fan and it was still pinching myself when i'd be in team meetings at duke you know it's still like holy shit this is actually real this is not like my dream i'm actually living this out so the respect part is there um how he treated me i always tell people like my dad is the greatest man that I've ever known. And my dad is up here. But then it's it's coach. Like he's the second figure in my life that has had an incredible impact and influence. Really? Yeah. In what ways? Um, first of all, he showed me what it looked like to give people a second chance. He showed me what it looked like to forgive. Because um, honestly, like I probably should have been either suspended or kicked off the team my sophomore year. And he wrapped his arms around me instead and put me on a plan. And that plan that summer changed the course of my life. It changed the course of my career. That's a big moment in your life. And so it's not that I feel in, like indebted. It, it's just, it, it carries a lot of meaning and weight. And I'm grateful for that. Um, 
the other thing is he, he makes time. He's incredibly busy. I was actually home for Thanksgiving. I was back in Raleigh. My parents and sisters lived there and I had texted him earlier in the week and I was like, Hey, do you mind if I come over? I'd love to catch up. So I went over to his house on Saturday and sat in his living room. He's also got a puppy, by the way. Oh, He's nice. Got, yeah. and, we love uh, puppies on the show. I we both have one. Uh, <laughs> Very um, cute. <laughs> but, you know, and just spending an hour and a half, it's just like yeah. he, he had a camp the day of my wedding and he got a PJ out of his own pocket to fly down, stayed the whole time, danced with the grandmas, got back on the PJ, was back at camp the next morning. Like he, yeah. he just... And it's not just me that he's done this for. I've seen him do this for dozens and dozens of Duke players. Um, so it just, I think we all revere him. Yeah. We all revere him. No, I, I remember seeing you and Jason both talking about him. And you all were discussing these funny moments, right? But it was all about how is there this man that is so grand, right? But has all of these other things and other reasons why we love him. And it's all so personal. And so many of you guys have had a singular experience, yes. which really speaks to who he is and what he has done for and to everyone, which is really yeah. beautiful. I also, for me, going back to the coaching thing, I, um, I've i taken something from every coach in some ways. And with coach, I've taken a lot. But one of the things that always stood out to me was how invested he was, meaning I never saw him have a bad day. That's not to say he didn't, you know, make mistakes. He's not a perfect person, but I never saw him come to work, come to practice, come to a game with the wrong mindset or the wrong attitude or the wrong energy. Like there was always such intent and uh, enthusiasm for everything he was doing on every single day. I was around him every day for four years, pretty much. Yeah. I never saw him have a bad day. And when I was a player, and certainly early on in my career, trying to figure things out, I probably went through some things. But, you know, once I figured out the NBA, it was like that. I took great pride in that. Like, I'm going to come to work today mm -hmm. and I'm going to be super enthusiastic. I'm going to be a great teammate. Uh, I'm going to be engaging. Um, I, I mean, I learned that from him. Yeah. Yeah. Being solid. And I yeah. think there's something to being a person where everybody knows what they're going to get. Mm. Like, regardless of the day, mm. I know what I'm going to get from this person. Yeah. And those, I think, tend to be the people that can kind of draw you to them uh, in yeah. different ways. Something you just mentioned, I have heard you mention it a lot um, in podcasts and different articles, is this sophomore year at Duke mm -hmm. and what it meant to your life. What did this year mean for you, the good and the bad? Yeah. To sort of set the stage, I grew up a Duke fan, had wanted to go there my you know entire childhood, uh, teenage years. Um, so it was like a dream and it came true. And then I get there and it's way harder than I realized. And it, it's way more of a fishbowl than I realized. And then on top of that, there's the, um, the opposing team's fan bases that just hate me. And I just kind of felt like I was in this spiral. And I asked my sisters to drive over from Raleigh in December of my sophomore year. Told them I wanted to quit. Told them I wanted to just be a normal student. Actually, Paulo Bencaro talked about this recently on a podcast where he felt like when he was on campus and he was a Duke basketball player, it just felt like everybody's eyes were on him. And it's weird because now, having played 15 years in the NBA, I realize it's not the case. But when you're in that moment, yeah. the, the Duke basketball experience feels so big. It feels so enormous. And so I... I kind of rebelled. I mean, I was I was living like a frat kid my sophomore year. And on the surface, whatever, I was third team All-American, second team All-ACC, leading scorer on a Final Four team. Like I had a good season, but it wasn't it wasn't right. And and coach said to me in a series of meetings after uh we lost to UConn in the Final Four, he made me come in like every Saturday during April at 8 a.m. And he said to me, We didn't win a national championship because you weren't worthy. And I wasn't prepared to hear that because yeah. it cut me so deep. So I spiraled even more. And it got to the point where I had not gone to class that semester either. So I had an incomplete that I had to finish. Summer school had started. I told my parents I was finishing the incomplete at Duke. I told Duke I was back in Roanoke finishing. Really, I was just hanging out at a buddy's apartment. And and that's, you know, I get here a pop, pop, pop on the door. And Wojo and Collins are there. They drag me to campus. And I go up to coach's office. 
And that meeting, uh, literally that moment yeah. changed my life. And Coach Collins said something in that meeting that has really stuck with, with me. He said, you know, the sad thing is we'll never know how good you could be. And the, the, t- the two of them, you are not, we were not champions because you were not worthy of being a champion. And the sad thing is we'll never know how good you can be. Those two things is stuck with me the rest of my career. Like I'm not, you, you're not going to be able to say that about me. I'm going to work relentlessly. And the support system I had at Duke that summer, they put me on a plan. Like I'd still have a sheet printed out of, you know, wake up time, check-in time, class time, workouts. I had three workouts a day, bedtime, um, when I would eat. Um, and so, yeah. And then I became known for the routine. Yeah. <laughs> it was because I didn't have a routine before yeah, that. Of that. I was just making shit up. Yeah. You know? So how much of that hard time and how much of this kind of crisis within yourself about, you know, being at Duke and figuring out who you are, how much of that was compounded by literally feeling like everyone hated you? It was definitely compounded by it. Um, it would have been hard no matter what. When you're 18 or 19, you're, you're, ego structure, your sense of self, your security and self, it's just not there. And I had a really hard time with that. I, I wanted people to like me. <laughs> like I thought was important to me, like it is for almost any 18 or 19 yeah. year old person. And so dealing with this, like the things that were said about me, even just like the, there was like a, a sick sense of joy in going to an opposing arena and having everybody yell at you. And then you know, having 25 points and winning the game. Like there's a, I kind of got off on it a little bit, but, (laughs) but also like, then all of a sudden the high, the high leaves you and you're left reflecting and you're, that's a question you can't answer. Like why, why does everybody hate me? Yeah. I'm 18 years old. Why does it, you know? And so that made it way worse, way worse Mm -hmm. than just the normal Duke experience. And I mean, it really was. I remember articles talking about you being like the worst person on earth. Mm-hmm. Like it was a big thing. Like everybody wanted to not like JJ Reddick. I assume now because of who you are, you have gotten over it mostly. Are you fully over that moment in your life? I'm I'm over it. I mean, <laughs> it's one of the reasons I can talk about it openly. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I you know I saw mental health professionals sophomore year on. Um, I became very comfortable in that setting. And so I continue to do that throughout my MBA career at different points in time. Um, you know, I, I have no problem seeking help, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm just, I, I think it's that period, especially at Duke is like figuring out who I am and being comfortable with that. Like I can admit I'm an asshole. Like I'm a sarcastic prick and I, that's okay. Like it doesn't make me a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's funny because I'm like, okay, I wonder if JJ Reddick now, how you would have felt about that JJ Reddick at the time. Oh, <laughs> oh I would have hated that kid. <laughs> You're like, I hear you guys. I see it. Oh, I'm like, I'm, get I get it. I get it. The head bobbing, the, <laughs> the smiling, just the, it was really annoying. That was yeah. really annoying. You know, I get it. I <laughs> well, get it. in a Vanity Fair article, you talked about just this arc that your career has gone. Just explain that arc to me, the points in that arc. Um, so I don't remember exactly what I said in that article, but I do remember telling Eve who who wrote the article. She was wonderful to to talk to. Um, like I'm not I'm not comfortable with people saying oh, I like JJ Reddick now. Like it doesn't, that doesn't like make me feel better or anything like that. I think it's like sort of just wanting to keep an even keel with other people's perceptions of you, is, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't necessarily view it in this arc, but the, the general thought is that I, when I first started playing at Duke, everybody hated me. Early in my NBA career, everybody hated me and they, they loved that I was failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I worked my way into the rotation. I gained people's respect. Um, and then in the end, it turns out that I'm not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a movie. Yeah, it is. Uh, again, that's, that's sort of the general sense I get from other people. But How has your experience changed the way that you talk about other athletes? Because I'm sure there are times where you have this inkling of, okay, I, I kind of don't like this person, but you don't really know why. Mm-hmm. And you think maybe that's what people thought about me. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, 
there's, when I talk about athletes, there's sort of two ways to do that. You can talk about output, meaning what they're doing on the court, the productivity, how that fits into winning. That's fairly easy to talk about. The nuance of talking about the human, which is something that I think you do very well and something that we try to do on the podcast as well. I think that gets complicated, especially not knowing someone, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Totally. So if I, if I know someone, if I've been someone's teammate, I'm just going to avoid it because that's sort of against the code. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but if I don't know that person and I'm asked to, and I certainly have to get at, I, I have to talk about certain people. I think, I think sort of viewing that through what happened to me, it's like, all right, I've got to be sort of delicate. And sometimes like even I'll gather information. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll talk to people around the league. Hey, what's this guy actually really like? Yeah. like is what's this locker room? What's sort of dividing this locker room? Um, I'm not going to like, quote somebody on that but it just it's information gathering yeah well so what last week we had chuck on the show and he was telling me the story about how he said something about michael jordan on air they haven't talked for 10 years because of it that was his best friend he was saying it's been something that's been very very difficult for him how do you toe that line and Mm -hmm. have there been times where you've had to talk about somebody that you're close to but it's made you a little hesitant because of how they would receive it yeah, I think there's been there's been two times that I wish I had handled differently. Um, the first one was with Zion last year when uh, CJ McCollum had given an interview at All-Star break and they asked him about what him and Zion had talked about. And CJ said, uh, I haven't spoken with Zion, which I thought was strange. CJ had played five games with the Pelicans at that point. And again, I, I think I called him um, like, a, oh, I can't remember the exact wording, but as a teammate, I said, you know, he kind of distances himself or whatever, um, which is something that I said to Zion when I was his teammate. It wasn't yeah. like this the first day. Yeah. I was like <laughs> just saying it publicly, but I wish I'd handled that differently. And I probably could have just avoided it altogether if I really wanted to. Um, and then there was something else recently, you know, just talking about a team and um, I probably got some information wrong. And uh, one of the players reached out to me and we had a nice chat about it. And mm-hmm. that was that. So I think, I think that's the challenge. Perk, you know, Perk and I have talked about this and Perk, I think, spoke on this when he came on my podcast. Like it is, it is hard. And I will readily admit, like I am so pro player that it borders on bias. <laughs> I will admit that. And I'm pro this generation of player. I will yeah. admit that. Um, <laughs> But it's formed by my own experience of of playing against these guys of, I'm not an historian of the NBA, but I certainly study the NBA. I mm-hmm. study, I spent like weeks last summer watching um, like old 1960s finals games on YouTube and 80s finals <laughs> games on YouTube. I'm like, am I crazy for thinking this about today's player? Let me go back. Yeah, let know? me see. Are they um, plumbers? I'm just kidding. But I, 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 I <laughs> I'm so, but you're, you're often asked to talk uh, and presented with a situation, especially on first take, mm-hmm. um, where it's not just about, uh, did this player shoot the ball well, or, uh, is this player causing this team to lose? You're, you're asked to talk about things that can often be very personal and mm-hmm. that's a challenge. And I promise you that as long as I'm doing this, I go into everything with the right intention. Yeah. I'm going to fuck up. Like, I know I am. Like, there's, there, nobody has batted a thousand in media. Yeah. There's not a person. Sure, not one human being. <laughs> but I wonder, too, how sustainable you feel like that is. Because I think that is one of your powers is that you are pro player. People feel comfortable talking to you because they know that you understand. But for how long can you be that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's something that I can get frustrated with sometimes because we do live in a world where clicks matter and people respond to incentives. And so if the incentive is a click, most people, I'm not saying everyone, but most people at some point are going to respond to that incentive, meaning they're going to say things or do things for clicks. Um, 
I don't go on first take. I don't do a podcast with the intent of clicks. Certainly, I want positive feedback. We all do. Yeah. Uh, but I go into the intent with trying to be as authentic as I can possibly be. And that can sometimes drive one group of people to feel a certain way and another group of people to feel a different way. Yeah. And that's the nature of the game. I've accepted it. It's all good. Yeah. You know, so in terms of how sustainable it is to be a pro player, like I think the people, the fans, I think people who are commenting on Twitter or watching First Take and disagreeing with things, I think they are so biased at times. Yeah. They're set in whatever they think. That they're so yeah. set. So nothing I'm going to say is going to change their mind. Yeah. It's in some ways, I'm not comparing the two, but in some ways it, it is like politics, right? Yeah. Oh, Where no, for it, sure. It is, yeah. you know, the people that are sitting there, oh, great take today. Yeah. It's because you already believed what I just said. Yeah. And the people who said, you're an idiot. That's because you think something else completely different. Yeah, There's no nothing I can say. No mind is changing yeah. in those three minutes. No. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, have you ever had something go viral from your podcast that you're like, damn, I feel bad that went viral? I've had plenty. <laughs> but I just, I wonder if you're like, that is not what I wanted this to be. Um, and then you feel bad for the player because they said it on your thing. It's like, it's a whole thing. I'll be honest with you. I'll, I can think of one example and I gave him every out I'll be honest with you, there are times, and it's not often, but we've done 137 episodes uh, on The Old Man and the Three. I've made five or six edits mm -hmm. without telling the guest I was going to make these edits because I felt like I had to protect them a little bit. Really? So I just don't put it in. We had one player early on get, give, it, give an interview the juiciest part of the interview was a story that nobody knows. It's fucking hilarious, but it put him in a tough position. And so his team reached out. Can you cut the story? We cut the story. Now with Perk, this motherfucker said he was praying oh, for LeBron, LeBron James <laughs> to tear his ACL. Crazy. And I was like, Perk, we're going to cut that. And he, no, you're not going to cut it. You're not going to cut it. They need to understand how crazy LeBron was making me, you know? So... <laughs> I was like, all right, we'll yeah, leave it in. Leave it <laughs> we'll leave it in. Really? That's interesting, making that decision to cut it for them. Um, yeah. I, it somewhat has to do with my own experience as a player. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's not additive, like honestly, when the player asked us to cut the story, it was the best part of the entire interview. I honored it. Uh, and we very well easily could have put it in there. We could have kept it in there. Um, but I felt like that was an additive thing to the story. So if it's not additive and it's just going to cause a fan base or a group of people to then be pissed off, like, I don't, yeah. I don't need to do that. Yeah. yeah. No. And that's fair. I think, yeah. I think that makes sense. Did you ever think, you know, you would be sitting down to do interviews in the first like 15 minutes would be about you as a <laughs> media member and not about... <laughs> And not about <laughs> J.J. Reddick, uh, sharpshooter. Even, you know, when I YouTube J.J. Reddick, mm -hmm. it's not basketball highlights that come up. It's yeah. just your podcast. I know my my oldest is very confused by that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, are you sure you played basketball, <laughs> Dad? You got to be very specific when you type in my name. Because he loves, like, He's on YouTube every day. So I'm like, yeah. when you're very specific, when you type in my name, you have to add the word highlights. Otherwise, it's just going to be the podcaster first take. Okay, so <laughs> if highlights came up, right? What is the highlight you would want people to see of J.J. Reddick, the basketball player? <sighs> the, the easy answer, the one that comes up the most, so the Duke Instagram accounts are not necessarily the official ones, but just like Duke fan accounts, Duke Twitter accounts or whatever, the Texas game comes up a lot. And I don't know how many views that has on YouTube. Um, but that's one. But I'm like, I'm really proud of my like Duke career. Don't get me wrong. I'm so proud of it. I'm more proud of my NBA career. Yeah. Um, because I understand now that I'm on the other side, uh, how ridiculous it was that I got to play 15 years in the NBA. <laughs> and I just, you know, out, I, somebody was asking me this the other day, outside of, winning a championship and being an all-star. And I only need those things once. I didn't need them nine times. I just, outside of those two things, like I did way more than I ever expected in the NBA. So, 
NBA, it's not it's not my forty point game against Houston, which was my career high. We'll make sure we say that. I think it's like a, I think it's probably like a random game in Charlotte or something where I had like like twenty seven, ten, and eight. Okay. Yeah. You're like I could. No, I, I a no, because I'm like. And I think, I don't know if that was the game in Charlotte where I had a little lefty reverse layup, but there's there was a little bit of sauce. It didn't come out much and it wasn't highly seasoned, but I had a, I had a little sauce. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you talk about doing, you know, all these things in the NBA that you probably never really thought your career would be. And I, in 2005, you did an interview with, I think, the Charlotte Observer, and they're talking about what you want your career to look like. And you say, oh, well, I'm just going to be a role player. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if most... NBA players or NBA prospective players mm-hmm. would have, like, would be able to say, okay, I don't think I'm going to be a star because that's the thing that you hope to be. Mm-hmm. How did you have kind of, I guess, that presence of mind to know this is what you thought would happen? Some of it is because I try to be realistic. Yeah. And some of it was coach. Um, something he always talked about was... Broadway shows. I know that sounds weird, but he said, if you go to a Broadway show, uh, let's say you go once and you're like, oh my God, that show is amazing. If you went a second time and you really thought, what makes that show amazing? Maybe it's the lead and maybe it's their voice and their singing and the lyrics, right? But what makes a great show, what makes a great team, what makes a, a great product is everyone starring in their role. So go to a Broadway show and watch the person that doesn't have any speaking parts, who's dancing in the third row of the ensemble. Like they're totally invested in that scene. And he talked about that with our own team. Like your role may change year to year, but if you're starring in that role, you have value. And so even with my son, every NBA fan, it's like, if you're not a top five player, you're a bum. It's a very weird phenomenon. Um, and so Knox will ask me about, is this, is this player good? And I'm like, yeah, he's good. He's in the NBA. (laughs) And he's like, well, how good? And I'm like, I don't know, Knox. And he's like, was he an all-star? And I have, it's, I literally had this conversation with him seven times a week. Knox, there's all-stars and there's all NBA guys. And then there's like 70 players that in the right moment with the right fit could be an Mm all-star. There's that many good players. So yes, Knox. Mikel Bridges is good. (laughs) (laughs) How do you think we got here, though, where that's how we discussed what a player was? Um, People like Liss. Yeah. We like Liss and everything. You know, what are the best restaurants in New York, Taylor? You're going to give me a list. Yeah. Who are the best players? You're going to give me a list. People like Liss. People like, it's like a Michelin star. It's like, oh, are we sure that restaurant's good? It doesn't have a Michelin star. It only got 7.2 at the infatuation. It's like, we're just that's Peter says no. But this is what this is how human beings operate. And so it's like if I go on a basketball reference page and I don't see all NBA all-star multiple times like well that guy wasn't that good. And that's not true. I mean I I think about different guys um somebody said the other day somebody asked on Twitter the other day something about which player would you want to see in today's NBA and I said Peja. Like Peja is like an overlooked OG legend to me. I think he was yeah, so awesome. Answer, I would not yeah, <laughs> but he would he would kill. He would yeah. kill in today's NBA. Not that he didn't kill in his own career, but um, so yeah, we just we think because a guy and I, this goes back to ring culture too, which is a very complicated thing. Did you watch by any chance? Did you watch uh, Hassan Minhaj's uh, episode with me that we did? He had this. We all did too, right? Uh, we did. This is the one we did with Brad. It was the Bradley Beal episode two months ago. But no, I think I watched the first. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the the most recent one, he had this really insightful. I thought I think profound take on winning and how we view winning and the cost of winning and sort of the maniacal maniacal approach that you have to take to win and be a champion. And we applaud that. I'm not saying it shouldn't be applauded. But there are different forms of winning. Yeah. And he used Steve Kerr as, as, as an example. And Steve Kerr's obviously won championships. But when you talk about his relationships with his family, 
his his lifestyle, the respect that people have for him. Like that guy's that guy's won. He called him the ultimate winner from those Chicago Bulls teams. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and and I agree. Dame, Dame has talked about this a ton yeah. too, right? Yeah. You can't tell me Damian Lillard is not a fucking winner. Totally. And it, yes, he doesn't have a ring, mm-hmm. but I would. I would say that guy's a champion. Yeah. He's a champion. Yeah. yeah. And he has so much respect of everyone in the league. Everybody likes Dame. He's one of the best teammates. He's kind. He has a beautiful family. I think that is fair and, and makes a lot of sense. But when I think about how we view these players, I actually do sort of think about your career because what you were drafted 11th overall, right? Mm-hmm. But those first three years of your career, I think it's fair to say it was a bit of a struggle. But then now we see you as one of the most prolific shooters of all time. And I say that to say, I wonder if we don't give players now enough time to become Mm. who they're supposed to be. Yeah. Because Um, say you came, what, five years later, there's a good chance you're not J.J. Redick. I think if I come five years later, I am probably have a better career. (laughs) But I mean, you had to get there. Like in that situation, you had to get there, though. Yeah. Because you, they weren't the other, playing. The other interesting thing, I, I got, I got lucky in this sense because I was not a good NBA player my first two years, and I didn't yeah. shoot well my third year. But at that time, like I felt confident that I was a rotation level player. Um, I was 22 when I was drafted. Like it wasn't like I was 19, and so the Magic were really patient with me. Um, I worked. Um, I figured out how to sort of fit on that team and 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 play a role on that team that Stan valued. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great learning experience, but we don't we don't give enough yeah. time for judgment calls. Like, I think this is not a I, thing that exists in the. We're also I, I'm guilty of this as well. I think we all want players to like make that jump, that leap, the proverbial jump from role player to star or star to superstar. And sometimes it just takes time. And Jason Tatum is a, is a great example. Mm-hmm. Like him not making all NBA his fourth year. And that whole, I, rem- I remember the discourse around that and the Celtics struggled that year. I th- think they ended up with the A7C maybe, something like that. But they were around 500. And Jason, counting numbers wise, had a good year. But it was like that he was a, disappointment almost. Right. He had a disappointing season and then comes back, makes first team all NBA, top five in NBA voting. Now is two years after that is, you know, I think the clear front runner right now for MVP. And so sometimes it that that leap just takes time. Sometimes players maybe never are going to become a star mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. There's a lot of examples of players that were drafted very high mm-hmm. that never made the jump to star, but are now in their... Jeff Green, he's in his like 16th year or whatever yeah. it is now. He's carved out a great career. Yeah. He's won. Mm-hmm. He's won. Yes. And I think yeah. that it's placing too much of that weight on the actual literal winning being a trophy. Mm-hmm. And it makes us really... Sometimes I don't like the way that we do talk about players because I don't think that that patience exists. I think that we expect players to be who we think they were supposed to be and we aren't giving them time to like fill in those gaps and it's very dangerous for players right because it affects their self-esteem but it also changes the way that we value life and people because everything is just like a commodity that has either like it's about to expire or it still tastes good and there's like no in between of those things yes yeah. i'll give you the i'll give you an in between of yeah. that and and actually I went on uh, Pablo Torre from ESPN Daily. He's, you know, you know him. He's yeah. awesome. Dude. Pablo's great. But we did a podcast on sort of mental health versus mental toughness. And um, I, I think the sort of in between is just kind of acknowledging that some players just aren't built a certain way mentally. And, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean they're less of a human or player. It's just they're not. They, they're missing it. And, and it's like some guys just, they're, they're never going to get it. And that's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But I think the criticism of that is what we signed up for. So, yes, I don't want to be dehumanized as an athlete. I don't want to dehumanize other athletes. Mm-hmm. But the criticism and the critique, it's part of the job. Mm-hmm. Why we get paid. Because there's millions of people that watch us and critique us and talk about us and want to join the discourse 
And it's part of it. And you just kind of have to accept that. Yeah. Would you say the majority of guys in the NBA actually do not handle criticism well? Because I would say that. <laughs> Here's my question. Who does... This is where I'm like, who does handle criticism? No, well? I disagree. I think that when there is something constructive being said, I will take that. And I know you will too. I'm talking about, I think that a lot of guys don't like hear, don't like hearing that they're not the best. Mm -hmm. That type of criticism. Yeah. I, not that you haven't been criticized publicly, Taylor, mm -hmm. but I think the constant public criticism mm -hmm. can weigh on you a little bit. So I think that's, an element of it. I also think that uh, there's this weird... I, I, I'm going to knock players here. And I, I there's this weird, like, the haters, right? It's like, <laughs> I want to prove the haters wrong. Or I have so many haters. And you're just like... <laughs> Dude, LeBron James. LeBron is arguably... Okay, let's just say he's top two player of all time. Let's just say that. Okay. Okay. He's top two player of all time. Let's say that. Actually, we'll just say, I don't want to offend anybody. We're going to say he's on the Mount Rushmore of NBA players. He's okay. top four. All right. At the least, he's top four. LeBron James has as many, if not more haters than any <laughs> NBA player to ever exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know no, what I for mean? Sure. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is the, and, and truthfully, there are people driving that public people in media that are driving that a little bit, but um, it's just part of the last 20 years, especially, I think, and specifically the last 13 to 14 years with social media. It's just, it's what we, what, it's what we do and it's what we signed up for. It's, it's fine. Yes. And I am agreeing with you, but I think that not everybody views it in that way. I think that some athletes take criticism that isn't like rough. It's just not them being the best. And they take it incredibly personally. There's been so many times that like someone has reached out about like a thing that I said, even if it wasn't bad, mm -hmm. like I didn't say anything rude or disrespectful. Who, who, <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'll write it in my book one day. But I, I didn't say anything rude or disrespectful. I just didn't say that they were this specific thing. And oh, take uh, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. to heart. The superstar thing. Uh, here we go. I don't, I'm not saying who or <laughs> yeah. what we're talking about. I'm not saying who or what we're talking about. But that is a thing. And I just wonder. Because you like lists. It's a very. Because <laughs> you like lists. And it's like, because you like to categorize things. I was actually asked about but that. But here's a question. So shout out to Jason. <laughs> here's a question though. I know. I know. Here's a question though. Let's, I'm going to put my myself in a, in a, Players it was in not a player's. I want to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, in a player's position, like, what do I value? So, I think it's human nature for you to be valued or to be categorized mm -hmm. in a certain way and to value that. So, if something like an all-star and how important that is. I think Rudy Gobert, when he got, first got named an all-star, he cried, mm -hmm. right? It was that important when to him. When he didn't get named. When he didn't, no, yeah. uh, when he well, didn't. He, started, he cried when he wasn't maybe he cried going both to times. be an all-star. <laughs> I don't think he cried the second one, but the first there time are when players he, that have cried when he they got wasn't up, named and yeah. he was that's upset. Right. That's, right. that's when right. he cried. That's right. Yeah. So that that was clearly important to him, as it should be, yeah. right? It's, it's you, you want to be recognized and it's important. Um, but I think placing too much value mm -hmm. on those categories or those lists, I don't think that's necessarily a healthy way to live. Mm -hmm. I know going back to Duke, like it seems small now. I was the leading scorer on the ACC championship team and my conference numbers were better and I was the sixth leading vote getter for all conference that year. So I was on the second team. And like, I was fucking pissed. Yeah. I was pissed. Had I made first team, my season was still shitty. Yeah. <laughs> like it was still a <laughs> shitty season. Yeah, it, it didn't it, really it, matter no, in the like, grand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, it, it's a small example. But I, I think, and coach used to, I remember even going into that year, we met before every season. And going into that year, I like brought this piece of paper and it was like, uh, first team All American, ACC Player of the Year. It was like all these win a championship, you know, all the all the all the goals I wanted to to do. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, let me ask you a question. Have you done 
anything noteworthy this offseason to actually achieve these goals. And I like, I left so de- dejected. Because you're like, no, I but haven't. Now, the following, mm-hmm. the following year, I was 215, 220-ish when my season ended. Uh, my sophomore year, I'd go into <clears throat> preseason at 192. I've won every conditioning drill. Um, I'm killing in every single pickup game because I had worked on my game all summer. And I go in there and I didn't even have any goals. I was just like, I'm just going to go and I'm going to play. But like, you can't say that about me this year. Right. You'll never say that about Mm -hmm. me ever again, that I didn't do the work to achieve something. Um, So yeah, I I mean, I I think the the category part and the list part, I think that matters. Um, But how much value are you placing on that? That's why we we get sensitive. That's why we get sensitive. Fair. And hey, I'm sensitive at times. I think everyone, everyone, I'm, everyone has the right to feel what they want to feel. Skin Taylor, <laughs> I'm fucking sensitive as shit sometimes. <laughs> Catch me in the wrong fair. moment. <laughs> that's fair. I just am like, you know, I don't, I don't want. I, I think what a big part of it is, I don't want want anyone to ever feel bad about something I said. Like that genuinely is a big part of it because yeah. you know a lot of your job is your opinion. It's asking questions, having discussion, and it's never coming from a malicious place. At least for me, I'm not going to speak for every media member. But so I'm always thinking like I don't want somebody to feel as though their like worth is being questioned because mm-hmm. I said something. Because in the grand scheme of it, who am I? Who cares really? But I, I, in the last year since I've become part of the media, I don't. I've been accused of like protecting a player. Like, I don't think players should be protected. Mm-hmm. Like if a criticism is fair and it's just and then criticize yeah. and say it. Taking your agenda out on someone is a very different thing. Definitely. It's a very different thing. And we talk about bias in media. And like, again, I am biased because of my experience. We are all biased to a degree because of our experience or in some cases, our knowledge, mm-hmm. right? If we don't have all the information, we may inherently be a little biased. Yeah, for sure. That's just how it works. Yeah. Okay, so in your MBA career, a criticism you heard of yourself that stuck with you? The defense thing, for sure. I mean, um, that... that because I had a, I was never going to rebound. I just not, I'm not a good defensive rebounder. So I was never going to rebound. And I, I, because of Stan specifically and our, our schemes there, like I never was going to gamble on defense. And so I didn't get a lot of deflections or steals and I didn't defensive rebound well, but like I was a good defender for a number of years, but like RPM wouldn't rate me well because I didn't get deflections. I have short arms, right? <laughs> defense thing. Now, at the end of my career, please hide me. Yeah. <laughs> please <laughs> like, I, hide I can't me. do anything on this. I told my first year in New Orleans, like we, <laughs> we, I, I called this team meeting and like, it was just kind of, we had lost a number of games in a row. And I think, I think we lost like double digit games in a row. And this was like halfway through the streak. But I like called this meeting and I'm like, all right, guys, like we're going to talk this out as a team. We're going to be real with each other. We're going to be honest with each other. And so like I said a few things to guys and I'm like, yeah, my defense sucks. And I'm like, guys, I can't do it anymore. I'm admitting to you. Like I can't go lock up Devin Booker. Not that I ever could, but it, like, I'm, <laughs> please hide me. <laughs> yeah, like, do not. It's a mismatch. Don't put me on Devin uh, So that's one thing. The other part about, the other part about being uh, a, a shooter, a great shooter, uh, and not just me. I mean, it's every every guy. People look at that so much, and they don't value all the other things you do. And you know, I I never was a high volume pick and roll guy. I think you know my last half of my career, I was always in the ninety ninth percentile in pick and rolls. Like, never <laughs> got any credit for that. Not that I wanted it, uh, but I did I was, a little. Bit. I was never going to be a primary playmaker, but I, you know, I I was a damn good pocket passer. I'll be honest with you. You know, if I had the right two-man game, you know, Joel, Zion, Blake. Um, so like you, you're, 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 again, I, I'm never going to get credit for any of that stuff. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll be a shooter who couldn't play defense. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but I played 15 years. So I must have been doing other things. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. So 15 seasons in the NBA, which season were you the happiest? The seasons that stand out, a lot of it has to do with the group yeah, and not necessarily something that I did. Um, That's fine. And it also a little bit has to do with the point in your life you're at. So I think about 2010 a lot. And we had made the finals in 09. That was a magical year and it was awesome. Um, But like personally for me, it was very meaningful because it was the first year I didn't get any DNP CDs. 
I played in every game that Healthy. year and I knew I was going to be in the rotation every night. And this, that was like, and we won 59 games. We made it to the conference finals. Um, my first time being a teammate with Matt Barnes, Jay Will, Jay Will was there, um, White Chocolate. So like, it was just an awesome year. Um, got engaged, got married that, that year over the course of that year. So like that year means a lot. Um, those first two years with the Clippers, um, even though I was like, I didn't have a great year. My first year, I played 35 games. I broke my wrist, tore a ligament in my wrist. I had a her- herniated disc in my back that caused nerve damage in my leg. Um, we ended up shitting on the bed against OKC in the yeah. second round. So like, there's a lot of things that went wrong that year, but it was my first year with those guys. I like became Chris Paul's friend that year. You know, yeah. I became DJ's friend that year. That was a, that was an amazing year. Knox was born that year. Uh, the following year was awesome. That was, you know, one of my best personal seasons and it obviously ended poorly, but like our group, those two years was so tight. It was great. Uh, and then my, f- my first year in Philly, cause that was yeah. leaving LA, uh, new situation. Brett empowered me so much to lead that group. And again, I got to play with Joe. I got to play with Ben. I got to play in Philly. It was magical. We had a 16 game winning streak. So those are the four seasons that, that stand out the most. Um, I I enjoyed I enjoyed all of it. Like I, yeah. I never, you guys understand. Like I would get stressed out. You know, I if if you're going through a shooting slump, if you're on a losing streak, I I, I did play on a couple bad teams. Yeah, you know, I was in the playoffs a lot of times. Like I was on bad teams a couple times, and like, it's very stressful. I was never ungrateful. I was I enjoyed every day of work, even when it was hard and even when it was stressful. I loved it all. I really did. That Maybe not the first two years. Yeah, not, not in Orlando. <laughs> the rest of it. That Clippers team is so fascinating to me because there were so many personalities. Mm. I mean, you talk about having to manage people. Yeah. I can't even imagine that one. And so you talk about Chris Paul. I know there's someone you've, you've discussed at length. I know Chris. I think Chris is great. He's super kind. He's been nothing but good to me. But people hate Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they've ever really spoken to somebody who knows Chris Paul well. Mm-hmm. So what is it that you would say about Chris Paul and why you think he tends to be misunderstood? Yeah, um, we hated each other in college. We both talked about that openly before. So that's- To each other. To each other, about each other, yeah. <laughs> in different articles. <laughs> but so I'm saying when you get on the team together, yeah. are you like, okay, we got to talk about how we really fucking hate each other because we have to get past it. So we, we, he re-signed, uh, and then a couple, few other guys re-signed. Darren Collison signed a one-year deal, and then I signed a four-year deal. So we had this press conference, and it was really the first time that we sort of had talked. Uh, we had, I think, texted during free agency, but it was like so brief. It wasn't a real conversation. So we talked there. And like, I was kind of like, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, <laughs> is he, is he going to be an asshole to me? Like he's been an asshole to me my, my entire existence of knowing him. Um, <laughs> and we both had gotten invited to Brandon Bass's wedding mm-hmm. that summer. So Brandon was my teammate um, in Orlando originally, and then again with the Clippers later on. But so we go to Houston and I like saw him walking in the hotel. I was, we were sitting, you know, I think we were in the restaurant or whatever. So I texted him. I was like, are you at Brandon's wedding? He's like, yeah. I said, like, come down when you're ready. Chelsea and I are just waiting to go. So, so he came down and we chatted for like two hours and it was like, oh, I'm going to really like this guy. I'm going to really like this guy. In in some ways, we are wired the same way. Um, I'm not throwing elbows into Jose Alvarado's chin. <laughs> I'm not that type Bad of... Bad angle there. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not nut punching Julius Hodge. I'm not doing that, but... It's all love, CP. It is all love, CP. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a, but that's a bad angle on that video. Chris and I, we, we could... We could yell at each other. This is what I love. We could yell at each other. We could disagree with each other on the court. Mm -hmm. And then we could go get dinner after the game. It was never personal because I understood that he just wanted to win and he understood that I just wanted to win. Yeah. Um, And so because of that, we got along really well and became very close friends. But when did you know like, okay, we're friends. Like not just we sat in this lobby for two hours and we spoke. Scandal. the television show? Yeah. You bonded over a scandal. We would, him and Jada would invite Chelsea and I over every week to watch Scandal. And we'd go and we'd sit in his theater room, we'd pour a glass of wine and we'd watch Scandal. That is hilarious. For like weeks and weeks and weeks. 
That, so was, that was when I knew. Yes, like, watching Olivia Pope <laughs> yes, is exactly. what bonded JJ Reddick and Chris Paul. Yeah. Wow. What were you? Were you team fits? Like where, where did you stand on that? And where did Chris stand? <laughs> oh my God. You're asking such specific questions about so much has happened in my life since that show was popular. Good show. I though. can't even remember the third season plot to be honest. Yeah. With you. It was a good show. It was highly entertaining. It was a good show, but then it kind of started to get a bit too crazy. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't realistic. Most, most shows go off. Yeah. Like when this happens. Okay. Biggest regret or what do you regret more? Getting LeBron's ankles and missing the shot, mm. or even thinking that you could stop LeBron and it ended up in you bleeding. Definitely the ankle breaker. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a career highlight moment lost. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not a highlight. It's not I I it's hate when you guys are probably guilty of this at Bleacher Report, and I'm sorry, but I hate when Instagram and Twitter accounts mm -hmm. show ankle breakers or a crazy pass and the shot it. doesn't go in. You got to make it. It drives me insane. Yeah. Um, I'm actually very proud of that charge because not many people <laughs> would stand in the way of LeBron James on a fast break and just take it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I know I've talked about this before, but like it drives me crazy because Knox and Kai, my youngest, they just, they give, they give me shit for yeah. missing that shot against LeBron. Do you have a moment against LeBron that you are very proud of? Not the charge. Um, there was a game in Philly during our big win streak. So this was 18. That was the team that he sort of took to the finals. They obviously lost to Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and the Warriors. But during that streak, we played in Philly and like we were, we were our motion offense and cutting. I just... I had a big first half and we were up like 30 and he brought them all the way back. And then I hit two big shots down the stretch. So that was, that was like a good, that was a good moment. You can hold that close. Yeah, okay, that was a good. good. A couple more for you before we close out. I do want to read this quote to you because I thought it was really beautiful. You said, I want to be really great at something. I want to win. I don't know how you win in media, but mm. I'll figure it out. What have you figured out? Mm. I've... <sighs> Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Taylor, if I'm being honest, there's, um, and it's only because I had this conversation with a friend of mine uh, who lives in the in the Bay Area, and I called the Warriors game two and a half weeks ago. Um, so we had dinner the night before, and we were talking about the competitive side of sport and how it's hard to find that that same competition in media. And I've reflected a lot on our conversation over the last two weeks. And when you are an athlete and you get to the highest level of your sport, it's one of the reasons I can't watch college sports anymore. It's very hard it's for me so to do. I watch the NFL, I watch baseball, <laughs> I, whatever, but I'm like, <sighs> when you get to the highest level of your sport, and you get to compete in that. And you certainly lose. You certainly win. You have good nights. You have bad nights. All of it is a drug. It's a drug. The high you get from winning a playoff game on the road or hitting a big shot down the stretch to close a team out and getting back to the locker room. It's a drug. I haven't found anything <laughs> that hits the same. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if I ever will. And I don't know if any athlete ever will. I don't. And there's certainly ways to... I, I, I find incredible fulfillment from being more present with my kids and with my wife and now our puppy. I find incredible fulfillment from that. But the, the fulfillment of competition that I got to experience as an NBA player, maybe I just have to accept like it, it won't ever happen for me in that same way. Um, cause that drug hits, man. Yeah. It really does. When, when I was talking to Chuck on the show and he talked about when you stopped playing basketball, he said that it was traumatizing. Is that the word that you would use? <sighs> I wouldn't use that word. I, again, my, my current, uh, mental health coach and, and therapist that I have been talking to for the better part of three years, he really helped me through 
retirement. Um, and I got to a great place with it. There are times, um, actually I had it this week in Dallas. Um, I don't even know if, I don't know if I was such a meaningless player at that point that it wasn't even a big deal, but we had a game Saturday, Sunday Mm -hmm. and home games. This was during the year where I was away from my family. So I, I saw my family three times in eight months. And prior to that had missed two months with them in the bubble. So my family came in for the weekend and, uh, Rick knew that. So Rick called me after shoot around and said, Hey, I don't think we're going to put you in the rotation tonight on the, in the first game, but I plan on putting you in the rotation tomorrow night. Cause it's the second out of a back-to-back. We'll probably have a couple guys sit out. Um, know your family's here. Don't want you to feel embarrassed. Uh, you're more than welcome to just go to dinner with them instead. I know you miss them, which was an incredible thing to do. And I thanked him profusely. So I went to dinner with them. It was at Ocean Prime, very close to my apartment, which also has to be close to the hotel where all the teams stay. Uh, so I was calling the Dallas game this over the weekend and I <laughs> walked from my hotel up to where the teams stay and I walked past the Ocean Prime and I started cr- crying like because I remembered that moment and how humiliating it was. Not that Rick humiliated me, but just that feeling like as a competitive athlete of like, there's nothing I can do to help my team win tonight. It's like, I'm that. And... There's been different points over the last year and change uh, since I've retired that, yeah, those moments hit you and it's not, it's not trauma. It's just, I think Chuck was the same way. I think most athletes that have long careers are, you put so much, you invest so much. It's not just time and physical exertion. It is literally all of your emotions, all of your mental capacity into something. And then it's just gone yeah, you're going to have moments where you're like, shit, man, yeah, that sucked. Or shit, that was awesome. No, I wish I could yeah. get that again. But I think that's such a good point because there is the time that you announce you're retiring, but then there's the time that you know you're going to retire. <laughs> and those are not the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And your time might have been ocean. Pro- like it, that might have been when you were like, oh, well, going. I actually actually had that thought this weekend because yeah. I'm like, I'm looking back. I'm like, how did I not know right then and there? Like I should have retired the next <laughs> day. <laughs> I should have just been like, I'm good. Um but yeah, it's Delusion. like those, those times yeah. aren't the same. It's but it's like, delusional, but, it uh, takes you... I knew, I knew going into the last year, because retirement, to be truthful, like as soon as we started having kids and I started missing time, and as they started getting older, I'm like, all right, I want, I want to keep playing. And even my 14th year, I had a great season for the Pelicans. And I, my last game of the bubble, I had 31 trying to stave off elimination from the, from the playing <laughs> thing. So like, I, it, it's like, I just... In some of it was physically my injuries. Like I just dropped off a cliff, but my spirit was broken that last year. Um, and I can remember the moment. And I had gone in that year being like, I think this is my last year. Um, and I told David Griffin that is one of the reasons I was like, I'm, New Orleans knows it's my favorite city, literally in the country and my favorite place I've ever lived. Uh, but I I was like, I, I need to be home. I'm not, my, my son is starting kindergarten. It's time for my family to have some sort of priority. And we go to Tampa first to play the Raptors in the pre, in the opening game of the, the season. And I had a great game. I had 23 points. It's two big three. Actually, I had four threes in the fourth quarter, but two big threes down the stretch, including an and one from the corner. And I'm like, jazz. I'm like picking up right where I left off from the bubble. And we go to Miami next. Christmas Eve is off. We have the early game at 12 p.m. I wake up that morning. My wife has sent me a video of Kai, my youngest, running downstairs to the Christmas tree. And I broke. And that was it. And I never, ever had any desire after that. I'm not good enough to halfway through it. I just, my spirit was gone. And I mean, I talked to my parents on New Year's. I thought about driving back from New Orleans. Like it was just, so yeah, it it, like that part of it, that part of it I've had to sort of reflect on. And there's a sense of like guilt because I'm like, man, I've fucking let my teammates down that year. And I... I have a built-in excuse because I had an Achilles injury, but but I was I was dog shit for like a month after that. Like I think if you looked up my stats, the next seven games I was one for six on average. I start seven for forty-two over a seven-game stretch, 
at no point in my career did I ever, I mean, I had some bad stretches, but like seven <laughs> for 42 yeah. over seven games. Um, yeah. That's bad. Yeah. That's bad. Um, well, I mean, going off that, I do kind of want to give a, a final thought and someone that I know is a, a dear friend of both of ours is Sue Bird, because I think that the way she retired was perfect. And she did it like on her terms when it felt right to her in her way. She had her moment with the fans. And I'm like, she was so lucky and also so intentional and so smart to be able to have that ride that she was able to have in the end. Does that make sense? 100%. And part of that, if we're being honest, is because Sue's a legend. Totally. (laughs) She is. There are plenty of examples this of this in, in different sports, but certainly I can think of a few off the top of my head in the NBA where the legends get to retire on their own terms. And, and maybe they weren't the player that they were five years prior in their prime, but they get to do it on their own terms. Um, most of us have to figure it out. And it's a, it's a very confusing process. Yeah. Um, I think Sue, because we, you know, I'm friends with Sue as well. And so like we talked about this uh, going into not only to her last year, but the year prior, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I get, I got the sense then, and I get the sense now, like some of it is for athletes. Some of it is that identity and that drug that I talked about, like our, and Sue has so much other shit. Think about this. Sue has so much other shit going on. Mm -hmm. She could have been five years into her post-playing career mm-hmm. already and be killing it at a bunch of different things. Yeah, There's something that is so addicting about competing and playing a team sport and trying to win. It's hard to give up. Yeah, It's hard to give up. That's not when people will talk shit about like mellow or IT or people, they're like, okay, you need to retire. I get feeling they need to retire, but I also get why they can't, Yeah, you know? And so it's just, I think it's a whole thing, but... I think basketball fans are very lucky and very happy that even though you have retired, your voice is still in it. And we get to still pick your brain and hear all your thoughts. And you genuinely are an elite communicator. So I think that we're all very blessed to have you in the media space, sir, and to have you on my show. So thank you so much for stopping by. This has been fun. I appreciate it. (laughs) Bye, JJ. 